Is this thing on? You know, we're living in a society but they want to deliver vast amounts of information over the internet. It's, it's a series of tubes. We're supposed to act in a civilized way. Allison, can you explain what internet is? Welcome. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. My name is Lacey Green, and this is Indirect Message, a podcast about how the internet is changing the ways we relate to each other. Thank you so much for joining and for giving this a listen. I know that there are millions of things online competing for your attention 24-7, and I'm grateful for your time. I hope that as this series unfolds, you'll find some new ideas to chew on, you know, some new ways to think about your experience with mass media, the internet, mobile apps, social media, and so on. Now, before we begin, some podcast kickoff housekeeping. Firstly, I wanted to give you guys a little bit of background about this project. The inspiration for this series comes from a few different sources. The biggest, perhaps, is my experience accidentally becoming an internationally recognized influencer, as they call it now, in the early days of YouTube. YouTube 1.0. For 10 or so years, I fell down a rabbit hole that now feels sort of like a bizarre fever dream, although I am informed it actually happened. Another inspiration for this series is friends and viewers of those videos who have long encouraged the creation of this kind of project. So a key part of taking this leap was Michael Brew. He created the dating app Sweet Pea. He approached me earlier this year to put our heads together about a podcast. And while this is, for the most part, going to be a one-woman show, he's kind of my co-producer at this point, and hopefully he'll come on and chat with us in the future about the bizarre world of dating apps. Lastly, this topic, uh, the internet and social media, have some sort of weird intrinsic importance to me as a kid who basically grew up online, you know, spent way too much time on the internet. And in a moment, that's sort of going to be the starting point of today's episode. My format here is somewhat experimental, But I do know that while this series will primarily be narrated by yours truly, I will also be chatting with others who have interesting and unique perspectives to share. And I'm hoping that maybe together we can make some sense of things, find some quiet truths in the chaos of our world. And that includes you guys. I haven't recorded many episodes yet because I wanted to hear from you guys first. I'm curious what you're thinking about, what's on your mind. You know, I want to know where your head's at. You can always email me your thoughts on my website, laceygreen.tv. And I'm also going to experiment a little bit with a phone line. Oh yeah, you guys. Uh, For those of you who have never used your phone to literally speak on, (laughs) now's your chance. You're very welcome. So if you have something interesting or funny or thoughtful to add to the conversation, give me a call leave me a message, and maybe I can include it in the next episode. Okay, I think that about covers my getting started notes. Let's get into today's actual topic. Today, I want to share some observations about social media phenomena, some thoughts and research about how it's affecting us, and how we might prevent it from taking over our lizard brains. Toward the end of today's episode, I'll be visited by a special guest. Chapter 1 internet kids. As I'm thinking about social media, it's really hard for me not to have a bit of nostalgia here. Like a lot of you, I'm a child of the internet. 
I'm checking email. I'm checking email. Hey, hey, I'm checking email. I'm checking email. feel lucky that the early internet had pretty much no rules. You know, this made it very appealing to moody teenagers like myself. We had GeoCities and Zenga, Angelfire, and of course, MySpace, which really lit up my world. This is around the time that instant messaging takes off. Chat rooms become a place to congregate with friends, and of course, to awkwardly flirt with your crushes. Or in my case, attempt to flirt. Goodbye. Rip Harry Potter Girl 14. But today, these communities are long gone. They're these strange sort of digital ruins, echoes of the past. In the meantime, of course, so many more social media communities have cropped up in their place. Maybe you've heard of them. Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, Snapchat, WhatsApp, Reddit. I mean, the list just goes on and on. These companies have built new digital playgrounds to play on. Playgrounds that are bigger, shinier, and much more popular than those of the past. And I honestly think that's what I miss the most about the early internet. It truly felt like an escape. Today, it's the real world that feels like an escape. Near its peak, MySpace had 27 million users, right? Which is a lot. But compare that to Facebook. In 2018, Facebook had 2.3 billion users. With a B. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Facebook has, I don't know, what, a quarter of the world as a user base? Not only that, but people use social media so much now. I think the average is something like two hours a day on social media, um, and people are accessing this from their personal cell phone, not from a dark basement, <laughs> not from a shared family computer. It's literally in your pocket. So all of this has changed how massive mass media really is. And more importantly, what mass media is really capable of, how much influence it really has on us. The instant access we have, the 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it really completely obliterates the influence of TV, radio, newspaper, I mean, every other mass media source of the past combined. Not only that, but the change happened really quickly, in less than a decade. So if you feel a little shell-shocked by it, you're not alone. I think we can all acknowledge that there are some strange, um, somewhat disturbing sometimes, aspects of social media. You know, who are we? in this digital world unraveling endlessly on these screens in our pockets. Who do we become there? And what does all of this mean for us as individuals and for our world? There's something interesting that happens every time you post on social media. Every picture, every video, text post, tweet, whatever, creates a digital projection of yourself. And over time, all of these little projections create a version of yourself in digital space. Some people have called this a digital footprint. Your digital footprint may or may not fully represent who you are, 
To those who aren't close to you in person, if you have friends back home or maybe family in another state, even, even strangers you've met online, right? You sort of become what you post. You're compressed into this weird two-dimensional version of yourself that's controlled mostly by your phone. And that's kind of what's appealing about it. We have much more control over our digital selves than the impression that we give others in real life. The most obvious example of this is how someone looks. You know, online you can curate photos and videos that present your favorite angles, lighting, outfits, things like that. But you can also curate personality traits. Maybe your digital self is more chatty. Maybe you're more political or more spiritual, more funny. You get the idea here. Online, we can be who we want to be. And for all of the avenues of self-expression that this offers, I often wonder if social media gives us the option to be fully human. Chapter 2. Trouble on the Playground Last May, while I was mapping out some topics for this podcast, something explosive happened on YouTube. I've never seen anything like it. It had all the perfect makings of a YouTube drama. Betrayal, lies, backstabbing, and of course, loads of receipts. Things might get a little dramatic for a moment, so bear with me. In the fallout, James Charles, a beauty guru, became the first YouTuber in history to lose over a million subscribers in less than 24 hours. Now, the drama itself is not the point of this story, but I'd imagine you're a little bit curious, so the cliff notes are these. James, a gay white 19-year-old, boasted 17 million subscribers on YouTube and something of a reputation for hitting on bi-curious guys. The pot boiled over for James when another beauty YouTuber named Toddy posted a video calling him out on this. Toddy is a former friend of James, she helped propel his YouTube career, promoted his products, and this is important. She also has her own vitamin brand. In the 45-minute video, Toddy accused James of manipulating people's sexuality by pursuing guys who weren't really sure about theirs. She also accused him of engaging in some asshole-ish behavior, like brazenly claiming, I'm a celebrity. But what really set her off and prompted the video was when James took a sponsorship with a competing vitamin company. So that's the tea. But what happened afterward was cataclysmic. In less than an hour, James Charles had been canceled. Hundreds of videos were made on YouTube about the drama. Some shared leaked text messages and private conversations James had had with lovers and friends. James Charles. James Charles. James Charles. He is a danger to society. Everything Tati said is 100% True. Biggest oopsie of 2019. He's entitled. From what I've heard from people, he's not the best person. James Charles tried to mass manipulate you all today. Frankly, I'm sick and tired of hearing and or seeing James Charles. As Toddy's video launched toward 50 million views, James lost close to 4 million subscribers. Social Blade's website even crashed because so many people were trying to watch his subscriber count falling in real time. The tone was celebratory and joyous. James is not the first person to find himself facing the angry wrath of millions on social media. Even the slightest missteps can quickly whip millions of people into a faceless, punishing dragon. The phenomenon is now so common and so baffling 
that it's inspired numerous think pieces, studies, and even some books. Why do social media mobs form in the first place? There are probably a lot of reasons for that that depend on each individual situation and circumstance. But one shared trait behind a lot of social media outbursts is moral conviction. If you asked one of James Charles mobbers why they're doing this, they'd probably reply that it's because, well, he deserves it. Public shamings of the past and cancellations of the present are a way to correct an injustice. In colonial America, public shaming was a common tactic to keep social order and enforce moral behavior. Keep in mind, this was before newer conventions like police came along. At the time, shamed townspeople would have their head and hands bound in wooden pillories so that they couldn't hide their face as the public looked on. Another punishment was public whippings, some of which could be very gruesome. Newspapers would rehash every gory detail for their readers to relish. By 1839, public shaming had been outlawed everywhere in the United States but Delaware, which, as history reveals, is a weirdly sadistic state. Delaware's last public whipping wasn't until 1952, and it was legal until 1972, a full 133 years after the rest of the country. But even as whippings fell out of use around the United States, other forms of public shaming became popular, like dunce caps, which teachers used to shame schoolchildren during the Victorian era and into the 1920s. Today, we use public shaming to express our outrage and enforce social norms as well, not with pillories, whips, or dunce caps, but with social media. Like other methods of public shaming in the past, social media certainly seems to have the potential for encouraging brutality against each other. But perhaps there's a silver lining here. It seems to have at least some potential for a positive impact as well. Take the Me Too movement, for example. Mass public shaming of harassment and sexual violence resulted in consequences for perpetrators. Without the public outcry of Me Too, the likes of Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, and others like them may have continued to commit sexual crimes. But as we've seen, not all social media cancellations are the same, and at least some seem to be a misdirection of legitimate grievances. For the online magazine Current Affairs, Lita Gold wrote, These frustrations are about power. Who has it and who doesn't? Canceling doesn't really work. It can't work. Because canceling itself is an expression of powerlessness. It's lashing out in rage and hurt because people get away with bigoted bullshit all the fucking time. And it feels like they always will. The only place where canceling can have a dangerous or long-term effect is for the unfamous. Gold says academia and young adult publishing are good examples of this. She says, There are spheres where the margins are slim, and there are real stakes to cancellation. It's gross and tragic when marginalized people compete for scraps. The grossness and tragedy isn't the result of cancel culture, but of the power dynamics at play. The issue isn't that YA Twitter has too much power, but that it basically has none at all. Frustrations turn inward, directed at policing the community, rather than outward at a publishing industry that pays writers in pennies. So the question becomes, at what point does the pursuit of justice go too far? When does it become an excuse for bullying 
or abusive behavior. Obviously, acts that are literal crimes do harm and are worthy of public shaming. But when it comes to bad behaviors of the non-criminal sort, which behaviors and thoughts and words are worthy of cancellation? And with social media mobs having the ability to take on a life of their own, in which situations do these public shamings have the intended outcome? While it might go against our gut reactions, it's established knowledge in the world of psychology that rewarding good behavior is much more effective at shaping how someone acts than punishing their bad behavior. Which kind of sets up the case for a more positive social media. We should reward the behavior that we like. We should also wield public shaming tactfully. Social connection is a vital part of human health and well-being. Isolation and rejection can be deeply painful. Studies have found that it's experienced as a type of physical pain. There's also evidence that being on the receiving end of social media abuse can trigger depression or PTSD. Targets of the mob can lose their ability to put a roof over their head or to feed their children. While public shaming is a relative constant throughout history, social media has armed us with more powerful and accessible tools than ever to carry it out. And because of that, I think it's important to really think about how we use this tool, when we use it, and why. Was the James Charles outburst really the attempts of 50 million people to get him to change his behavior? Or is something else going on here? In 2007, beauty queen Lauren Caitlin Upton became a national sensation during the Miss Teen South Carolina competition. Not for winning, but for failing. Recent polls have shown a fifth of Americans can't locate the U.S. on a world map. Why do you think this is? I personally believe that U.S. Americans are unable to do so because uh, some people out there in our nation don't have maps and uh, I believe that our ed education like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq everywhere like such as and I believe that they should uh, our education over here in the U.S. should help the U.S. or should help South Africa and should help the Iraq and the Asian countries so we will be able to build up our future for our children. Thank you very much South Carolina. Upton was an immediate viral hit. Her gaffe dominated the news cycle for days, and nearly 70 million people have since tuned in on YouTube to watch and laugh. At the time, my friends and I found it hilarious. For weeks, and occasionally still, we joked about the Iraq and such as. In retrospect, I wonder why making fun of her felt so satisfying. At least part of it came from watching someone beautiful and successful fail so prolifically. For all my own moments of stupidity, there's something comforting about knowing, well, at least I'm not that chick. Schadenfreude is a German word meaning harm joy, as in joy at another's misfortune. Curiously, there's no English word equivalent to schadenfreude, but the emotion has been documented throughout history, in many languages and cultures. Even my boy Aristotle used the term epikach... Uh, Google, how do you say this one? Epicaricacy. Aha! Epicaricacy. Epicaricacy. Which refers to enjoying other people's misfortunes, way back in 350 BC. 
We all experience schadenfreude from time to time. It's why we find it funny to watch a viral video where someone does something stupid and gets hurt. Or when a festival that caters to rich, snotty kids becomes a total disaster. Schadenfreude is why watching reality TV shows where people embarrass themselves or reading magazines about celebrity scandals can be a guilty pleasure. It's behind that little pang of pleasure when a classmate does worse than you on an exam or a fellow coworker fails to get a promotion. Researchers note that schadenfreude isn't exactly taking pleasure in someone's pain, but taking pleasure in watching them fail. It's a feeling that seems to become more intense the higher someone's social or economic status is. I mean, let's be honest. Watching someone who's too perfect, too successful, or too rich fail can feel pretty damn good. It's such a common and potent emotion that the makers of Pixar's Inside Out considered including Schadenfreude as a character in the film. Uh-huh. <laughs> Your cries of pain amuse me. <laughs> All right, Schadenfreude, knock it off. At one point, they were considering 26 different emotions for roles. And of all the more complex emotions that they cut, like pride, hope, envy, greed, director Pete Docter said he regrets cutting schadenfreude the most. In the end, they decided it was just too complex of an emotion for kids to grasp. But that doesn't mean the kids aren't experiencing it. In one study, infants that were only nine months old preferred that puppets punish other puppets that didn't like the same food as they do. One of the researchers, Felipe Rochat, says, when you think of normal child development, you think of children becoming good-natured and sociable. But there's a dark side to becoming socialized. You create friends and other in-groups, to the exclusion of others. All of this suggests that there's a little darkness lurking in all of us. Some darker than others. While researchers disagree on an exact cause of schadenfreude, they do agree on one thing. At the core of this emotion is dehumanization. Dehumanization is when we strip other people of the traits that make them human, their ability to feel emotional pain, you know, being prone to flaws and mistakes, the desire to feel safe and accepted. When academics talk about dehumanization, the most common example that's given is usually in war. You know, soldiers might be told that the opposition are literally animals, they're rats, they're vermin. There's all this language that sets up the justification for the violence that they're inflicting on them. This is obviously a really extreme example though. Dehumanization can also be subtle, like reducing another person online to a cartoon-like character not a real person on the other end. Because our interactions online are mediated through screens, it makes these dark impulses easier to indulge. And to me, it seems at least possible that social media itself is normalizing some dehumanizing behavior. The good news is that there's a potent antidote. Empathy, making the deliberate choice to remember that behind each avatar is a human face. Behind each gaffe or social media storm, there's a real person who makes mistakes, feels pain, and may be suffering. It seems so obvious. But then, why does it feel so good to watch someone fail? Researchers have three theories about the roots of schadenfreude in our behavior. The first is deservingness theory. This theory suggests that we feel schadenfreude when someone did something we see as morally wrong. So they deserve the misfortune that they're suffering. 
The second focuses on in-group, out-group dynamics. We experience schadenfreude when members of a rival group experience misfortune, like during sporting events or a political election. The third theory is envy. This one suggests that it feels good to watch someone we envy get knocked down a peg. It makes us feel better about ourselves and boosts our self-esteem. And I'll be honest, you guys, when I spend too much time on social media, sometimes a little boost of the old ego is exactly what the doctor ordered. Chapter three, Age of Anxiety. Here to chat with me about social media, self-esteem, and mental health is none other than my sister. She's a therapist and a social worker who works with teenagers. I thought it was kind of funny the other day when we were texting and you were like, yeah, you know, I just completely deleted my Facebook and I'm not using social media anymore. Yeah. I actually got kind of jealous of you. Really? For a minute. Yeah, because I wish I could do that. <laughs> Why'd you quit? Um, it was too much pressure. What do you mean? Um, pressure to check what everyone's doing, pressure to like upload, pressure to comment, family members getting mad if I don't know what's going on because I should have read the post. Oh, God. Someone got mad at you for that? Yeah, I don't know. Just like, God forbid, I didn't get on and I didn't read the whole book that was written in a post. <laughs> yeah. You know, then it's like... It's like the end of the world. and I mean, I honestly think you should really go back the last 40 posts on their page. You owe that to everyone, all 800 <laughs> right? of your Facebook friends. That, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, I, I know we're being, we're joking about it, but that's what it feels like. How do you feel social media has impacted your self-esteem? The positive side is that there is room for self-expression. And mm -hmm. the ability to kind of like connect with people. But at the same time, there, I feel like the negative might outweigh the positive because there's so many ways for people to alter their appearance. My friends don't take a Snapchat picture anymore without a filter. Mm -hmm. um, like the other day, I was talking to one of my friends and she wanted to, she didn't want to FaceTime. She wanted to Snapchat FaceTime because she could throw a filter on. And mm -hmm. I'm just like, it's, it's just me, you know? And she's like, I know, but it looks so gross and this and that. And it's like, well, like, when did that become a thing that like, we look so gross, we have to put like a cat filter on us. <laughs> so, you know what I mean though? Well, I wonder to what degree that's being caused by social media, because, you know, people have always kind of tried to alter their appearance. It does seem possible, at least, that social media is giving people ways to, um, remedy like quick remedies for self-esteem issues but in the long run I wonder if that's making things worse because then you have everyone using filters and facetune and you know all this stuff that makes the whole environment on social media less real right virtually anything that you can change on your body there's an app for it'll do it for you that perception can only be played on for so long before someone is you know they're hiding behind a facade and i think it catches up to people and they get scared to um maybe see see someone that they met on tinder in real life almost like you have to compete with this image that you put out on social media for everyone what about the same sort of expectations that come up from seeing everyone in your social group, for instance, getting married or 
having a baby or traveling around the world or, you know, leading these interesting, fast-paced, ideal lives. Like FOMO, like fear of missing out? Yeah, FOMO is part of it. They're really living their life to the fullest. You know, I'm laying in bed. I took a shower an hour ago. I still haven't gotten out of my (laughs) towel. And I'm just there like, wow, I really suck. I really need to up my game, you know? Oh my gosh. This happens every day um, where I'm like, should, should I be having kids now? Am I getting too old? Do I need to freeze my eggs? Um, why am I not married? You're only 27. I know. <laughs> so how do you think stuff like this is impacting people's mental health? So UCLA has done a lot of um, studies on this. This specific study, they took teenagers that were ages 13 through 18, and they found that for this age group, receiving a high number of likes on photos um, or just getting a lot of notifications in general on their phone um, renders a surge of dopamine in the brain, which is Mm -hmm. a chemical that's really consistent with a lot of addictive behaviors. It's kind of what keeps people going back. Let's say like if they were only spending 15 minutes of so- on social media, they were getting their dopamine surge. Two weeks down the line, they, they need to do a half hour instead of 15 minutes because they're not getting that same surge. Mm. You know, and so it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like building a tolerance to social media. That kind of makes it sound like social media has drug-like properties. Yes, it does. You know, I think it was, I think it was Bill Maher. He's a talk show host. Um, a while ago, he compared social media companies to the new big tobacco mm. that they were sort of pushing us, you know, these drugs essentially that harm us in some way, but feel good or make us look cool or whatever, um, and are specifically designing the social media products that they make to be addictive. Right. So it keeps you coming back for more. So, like, I have a girl that I see, and she'll tell me she has she puts a lot of um, emphasis on her Instagram, and she really put her mood is really reliant upon if her photo got a certain amount of likes. The downside is that if she doesn't have enough likes, or if she's not reaching where she wants to kind of go, um, she's kind of asking herself, "What did I, what did I do wrong with this photo?" What can I do differently next time to get the same amount of likes that I got in this photo? How old is she? She's 16. 16. Yeah. So that can make a teenager feel pretty anxious. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot more of our therapy sessions are revolving around social anxiety, which has always really been a problem among teenagers. But now that they have their phone, which is a source of comfort for them in social settings, they get really anxious when they don't have their phone or can't use their phone. When you're working with teenagers who are dealing with some sort of social media-related anxieties or depression, um, what do you tell them? You know, many of the the pressure that teens are feeling from social media are normal. Mm -hmm. Some of the things like wanting to fit in, the importance of who's friends with who, Uh, who's dating who, you know, this is nothing new. Um, But we're seeing that social media is certainly exacerbating these anxieties and these pressures. And I I think it's kind of because they're taking place in different spaces that can kind of amplify them. Yeah, like make you fix on it, fixate on it more on social media than if you were, 
you know, dealing with this just at school, right? Now it's all the time and right. you have access to it all the time. Right, right. I mean, they can check to see their their friend count or who's friends with who or who's unfriended who, um, mm-hmm. you know, at any time. And and it's um, shifting their, their focus and certainly away from things that they should be doing, like their homework, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh huh. Well, you know, we certainly had a lot of distractions from doing our homework too. So, <laughs> can't really blame them for that. This is true. This is true. But what what can we do? I mean, it seems this is kind of how things are for teenagers, and social media is always going to be there. Is there anything that can be done? Absolutely. I think that let's say they're having trouble with their sleep because they can't get off their phone, you know, then that's a kind of a quicker fix. You can work on getting them to shut their phone off earlier in the, in the nighttime. But if it's something larger, like they're having self-harming be- behaviors, um, a lot of it is dealing with a deeper problem. Mm-hmm. So like getting to the root of where social media is becoming a harmful force in your life right? and really unpacking that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it anxiety with body image um, or fear of not living up? Is it fear of missing out and uh, they feel like they need to be in and get a lot of likes and have friends? Um, Mm. Is it that they're engaging in self-harming behaviors and they're finding platforms that really glorify these behaviors or blogs or websites that um, help uh, support people that are anorexic or who can lose the most weight, you know? So kind of taking them uh, down that road to figure out where they're at and what what exactly is the problem. Do you have anything else that you wanted to uh, make sure comes to light here? Um, I think it's important that teenagers and young adults and adults alike understand that it's not about how many friends you have on this platform. It's about who you can call if you're in a real crisis. Mm. You may be able to say that you have five million friends on Instagram but how many people do you have that you could drive over to at this point in time and kind of like have a meltdown with Mm -hmm. do you like that one (laughs) I love that one it's not unusual to be flung between feeling happy anxious interested disgusted and lonely all within just a few minutes online and while we can't control the chaos online we can control how we use it. As massive and exhausting as the internet might feel sometimes, it can also be a place to find friendship, humor, and hope. Its earliest, scrappiest days should always serve as a reminder that we can get out of the internet what we put into it. On the next episode of Indirect Message, I'm joined by Tom Nichols, the author of The Death of Expertise. What's really driving this, in my view, is that people are being driven by narcissism. During our thoroughly delightful conversation, we explore how the internet is changing our relationship with the truth. I'm so looking forward to this one, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Make sure to subscribe or follow Indirect Message on your podcasting app to join us, and I will see you guys then.